This message was given at Campus Fellowship's 2020 Winter Retreat by UNO's Campus Fellowship Director, Matt O'Malley from Omaha, Nebraska. The theme of this specific conference was heaven. We hope you find this encouraging. My name is Matt O'Malley. I'm a campus director over in Omaha. Um, earlier, I said I'm a Broncos fan. I was originally born in, in Denver. Um, both uh, me and my siblings are all from there. We moved to Omaha, actually Council Bluffs. So I grew up in Iowa. I grew up in Council Bluffs from when I was seven till I graduated high school. So I know the power of Iowa is strong. And um, there's a lot of tension between people in Omaha and in Council Bluffs and Iowa-Nebraska rivalry. I love Iowa. It's, uh, it's got a special place in my heart. I graduated from high school, um, went to a Catholic school, and then I went to Omaha at UNO, and I got hooked up with the campus fellowship team there. I became a Christian in college and uh, gave my life to the Lord and have really seen just a new life emerge in my life. Um, I hope you guys had a really great Christmas. Uh, I know we did. We, in our family, we have a really special Christmas tradition where uh, every year uh, we assign somebody the role of what we call the holiday cheermeister, and that person is in charge of picking out our theme for Christmas. And uh, that person, you know, back in July or August uh, will select who you have for Secret Santa, who you need to give a gift to, the price for what that gift is going to cost, the theme for the meal, and all the side dishes that we need to, to bring. And my mom this year was our holiday cheermeister. And for our 2020 family Christmas, we called it Christmas Around the World. And you can actually bring that photo up. So this is us at our Christmas party. Uh, it doesn't look like a Christmas party, but I promise you, you should do this with your family. It's so much fun. Um, my sister, she wore a toga, and uh, she was representing Greece. Uh, my brother-in-law was dressed as a German. He uh, carried this, like, stein around all night. It was really fun. My brother, I think, looked the most authentic to the far left, um, dressed up Lebanese. Um, he wore this really cool fob, this uh, men's one-piece gown. And uh, my dad uh, was Canadian. Uh, I'm sure he offended a lot of real Canadians because nobody actually dresses in plaid and wears a hat like that in Canada. They probably just actually look like us. Um, my mom was the holiday cheermeister, and you probably can't see her very well, but she's next to me, and uh, she dressed up as like an airline um, stewardess, which was really cool. It was very creative. Um, you can go to the next picture. Here is me and my wife. Um, my wife teamed up with my oldest son, Sterling, and uh, they dressed, how do I say it, kind of questionably. And I, I use that word because it was really difficult to, to guess what they were dressed as, which country they had. It was supposed to be a secret until you showed up to the party. And I, I swear we were guessing for almost an hour, and we finally figured it out. And if you knew, and if you know what she's dressed as, then kudos to you, you get a gold star. She's actually Ukrainian, and she had to bring a Ukrainian dish. And then, of course, me and my youngest son teamed up, and we were dressed like respectable Irishmen. And our, we wore our costume the whole night. It was a lot of fun. You know, the party, it went on, and we all enjoyed ourselves, as we always do. And about halfway through the party, we realized, oh, man, we, nobody took the initiative to bring ice to the party, which is a big no-no. And so 
being gentlemanly and being someone who's willing to go to the store, I went to the store and, and uh, made the choice to go and get it. And so before I left, all my family was like, are you actually going to wear your kilt? Are you going to change? Keep your sideburns? I was like, heck no. I'm going to the store. I'm going to be wearing my kilt. So everyone's laughing and kicking the floor like, oh man, it would be so funny to see the looks on everyone's faces when you show up. And, uh, you know, it was funny back at the house. But, uh, you know, walking into a uh, Casey's gas station at 3 o'clock wearing a kilt is uh, totally something different. I was like, okay, this is going to be really uncomfortable. So no one threw stones at me. You know, I'm, I'm fine. I'm just glad my, bro my brother didn't come with me wearing his uh, fob. That might have been a different story, I guess. But on the way back to the house, I actually started to seriously wonder, is this what a foreigner feels like? when they come to our country? Is this what somebody who's a true outsider really thinks when they're in a place that they don't belong? Like all, they, they feel the eyes of people looking at them and assuming something about them. And the scriptures tell us that once you're a born again Christian, once you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, you are no longer fit to be here. Once the Spirit lives inside of you, it makes its home in you, and it begins to give you this longing to go back where the Spirit came from, to be heavenly-minded. And if you haven't ever thought of yourself like this before, God has given you a new identity to be a foreigner and a stranger, and it's time that you started seeing yourself like that. If you're not already there, would you guys open up with me? So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11. And I want to study this part of the chapter today, uh, verses 13 through 16. I titled my message, Fresh Off the Boat. And we'll look at Abraham's example of faith as he and his family lived as strangers and aliens in this world. So follow along with me. We'll be in Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. Verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on the earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country not their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. You can write this down. Here's our first point. A city, not yet. Now, before we uh, can understand the passages of 13 through 16, we need to jump back and get a little context, right? So in chapter 11, the author of Hebrews is chronicling through the millennia all these men and women who lived by faith and who had reputations for producing that. And uh, the chapter is commonly known as like the Hall of Faith, right? And deservingly so because, you know, what these men and women did was, was amazing, so to get context, jump back to verse 8 if you have your Bibles open. And it says, By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place that he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going, right? Okay, so you guys know the story. Abraham and his wife, called by God, left their home and moved into a new land to become the father of many nations, except they didn't really know <laughs> where they were going right? 
God said, leave. They said yes, and they basically went on this, like, joy ride. And, uh, you know, I didn't Google this or anything, but the brief definition of a joy ride, you get into your mode of transportation, and you just, um, you just go. <laughs> you don't really have a destination. And it was sort of like that for Abraham and, and Sarah, except they're on foot. Um, you're taking your entire family with you. Your plan is to actually settle in this land. And you're going in blind. You ain't coming back. And oh, by the way, you're like 90 years old. Let's go to verse 9. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Okay. They made their home in the promised land, Abraham and Sarah, right? But neither of them had the intention to leave and go back. And that would be kind of foolish because it took so much time and energy and faith to actually get there, right? This is a one-way trip from the beginning. And to give kind of like an accurate exchange for maybe what happened, right? And for us to be thinking kind of like they would have 4,000 years ago, imagine you're a uh, an astronaut, and you get you know, issued a mission by command, and they tell you to, you're going on a one-way trip, and you're going to live on a foreign moon of, like, Neptune or something. So God gets your attention, and he, he assigns you this crazy mission, and you say, okay, yeah, Lord, I accept the mission. I am going to be faithful, but I got to tell you, I really, don't, I really don't know much about where we're going. <laughs> as, a matter, as a matter of fact, I don't really know anything about where we're going. But you might say something like, okay, God, but is it warm there? Because that's kind of a deal breaker for me. It's got to be warm. It's got to be nice. So Abraham and Sarah, they took their mission by faith. They uprooted themselves from Ur in Mesopotamia, and they arrived at their destination, their destination and it was, um, it was kind of a buzzkill, right? Not exactly what they were expecting, right? They were optimistic, though. Finally, they landed in, the, in Canaan, right? They trusted God, and they began to, like, look at their estate, you know, the, the luscious, rich resources that God had provided for them. And you know what Sarah's doing, right? You know, she's over here. She's creating hundreds of Pinterest boards with all the ideas of what she wants to do with this new kingdom, right? She was thinking shiplap in the, uh, in the dining hall. She was uh, going to put succulents everywhere, and she definitely wanted a raised garden bed. That was, that was a must. But guys, there, when they got there, there was, there was no kingdom. There was for the Canaanites, but not for Abraham and Sarah, right? There was no nation. There was nothing. And it, when Abraham and Sarah arrive, they're foreigners. They're strangers. They're nobodies in this land. They look, they speak, and they act very differently than everybody else who's there. And Abraham and Sarah, they lived in tents until they died. God never actually gave them a home, and that's important to know. And just so you know, the only plot of land that Abraham and Sarah actually did own when they were there was a plot of land that Abraham bought to bury his dead wife, Sarah, and it contained, a, it was a field and it had a cave. I mean, that's not much of a kingdom. The kingdoms that I know of, that we know of, are all spacious and well protected. 
But Abraham and Sarah, they, they, they lived in tents. And the longer they stayed in Canaan, the longer they were there, the, the, the more their eyes started to kind of open. And light bulbs started to go off in their minds. And it was clicking in that they would never actually get the city that God promised them. In the end, they knew that God would accomplish his grand plan, every single iota of his grand plan, just not in the way that they had envisioned it. And they knew God could be trusted. God was already proving himself faithful again and again, taking them and speaking to them in Ur and bringing them all the way up north through Syria, down through Canaan, and because of a famine, they had to go down into Egypt, and God provided for them. He brought them back up into Israel, what we call Israel now, the land of Canaan, right, through famine. And God eventually gave Abraham and Sarah the seed of the promised nation, the, the multitudes that he had promised them through their son Isaac. Go with me to verse 11 and 12. And by faith... Even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, ouch, <laughs> came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sands on the seashore. And we can look back and know that Abraham, I should say, we can look back and we know what Abraham couldn't see. His offspring, through this one person, would eventually conquer the pagans living in that land. They would procure the land. They would establish, um, they would be established with God's covenantal law that would govern the people in righteousness. They would build a temple in the capital city of the nation. And they would eventually be a light to the nations. They would be a beacon, a honing beam for everyone to see the light. But, they, but Abraham didn't see any of this. Guys, they live in tents. I mean, like, what kind of tents are we talking about here? Are these like glamping Wi-Fi tents or are these like Boy Scout tents? I don't know. But they were tents. And God's plan was to take the people in Abraham's line and to give them a city in a city with foundations whose architect is God. Go with me to verse 9. But Abraham, oh, I'm sorry, by faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him in the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Now Abraham... He died living in a tent, but we know by reading the Bible that God did not give Abraham this city, right? The patriarchs, all of them, right, peeking into the future, longing to see what we see and trying to guess what this inheritance was actually going to be, right? The temple, the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, the curtain, the city of Jerusalem, these are all shadows, as the writer of Hebrews would say. They're all rough drafts of the heavenly realities that God was promising all along. And friends, they are still not here yet. 
So if I were to ask you, and this is not a trick question, but if I were to ask you and say, have Christians been redeemed yet? Maybe you'd say, yeah, we have been. The answer is no. We have not yet been redeemed. We have been and deposited with the Holy Spirit. What does it say in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14? It says, uh, you know, and you will be deposited with the Holy Spirit, which is a de- deposit guaranteeing your inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. We're not redeemed yet. How privileged are we, though? And I use that word specifically. How privileged are we to have a ticket? But yet, we, the show hasn't started yet, right? We've been given this slit with the New Testament, a slit in the curtain that we can peep through and see what Abraham, Moses, and David longed to see, that they yearned to see. But what God was promising all along for Abraham was a city, a heavenly city, whose architect and builder is indeed God. But this city, this city cannot be destroyed. If you ever get a chance to go to Jerusalem, I have not, but I know this to be a fact, the temple, it ain't there. There's people who uh, bow and pray uh, along the wall, but that's only a small portion of, of what is left of the city of Jerusalem and the temple. It's gone. Now, before we move on, can I give you three quick points? Write these down. First one, God's promises have a longer shelf life than we want. Peter writes in his epistle, uh, in 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. When we are given a promise in the scripture, it is not our timeline God is obliged to follow. Number two, you may not, you should have underscored this, you may not internalize God's promises any way you see fit. And here's something I know about each one of you. I only know a few of you pretty well, and some very well, but here's what I know about all of you, that your hearts are wicked and deceitful and deceptive so is mine. And we, are, we do not have the liberty to take the promises of God and to put them in our own shape that we desire to see fulfilled in the way that we desire. Number three, set your minds towards the promises God has clearly given us. Instead of morphing his promises to what we would like, why don't we just settle and be content with, and I promise it'll be good for you, to take the promises God has given you and to yearn and long for those fulfillment of the promises he's given us. So instead of reading our expectations in a text to carve out our own promise, we should focus on the promise God's already given us. Let's go to our second point. Here's a story. Many years ago, a ship known as the Empress of Ireland went down with 130 Salvation Army officers on board. Along with many other passengers, only 21 men from the Salvation Army survived. Of the 109 that drowned, not one of them was found with a life preserver. Many of the ship's survivors told how the brave men, seeing that they were not enough preservers for everyone, took their own 
and gave it to another, saying, I know Jesus, so I can die better than you. I know Jesus, and I can die better than you. Who says that? Only someone who's convinced that what is here is not better, but somewhere else. Go to verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised, only they saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were strangers and foreigners on earth. And some of you who might have your Bible open, you might notice this already, that we might have a different translation. I'm reading from the NIV, and um, what mine will always say in Hebrews 11 is like strangers and foreigners. Now, I looked up all the other translations, and there's a common thread. All of your translations will probably say stranger, but there is some variation on the word foreigner. And the noun that might replace foreigner in your translation might be something like strangers and exiles, strangers and nomads, refugees, aliens, pilgrims, or sojourners. And when we uh, study the Bible and we can see the different translations, it gives us a really clear picture of exactly God's expectation for a lot of things, but specifically for our identity, right? So when you, or if anybody, identifies themselves as an exile, uh, you know, a nomad, a refugee, a pilgrim, you're saying two things. Number one, the world is not up to my standards. This world does not meet my expectations or my standards. Number two, I desire to be elsewhere, somewhere where I belong. Let's go to verse 14. People who say such things, say what things? That they're aliens and foreigners and strangers. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country that they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing, longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Now, if you're here, if you're a disciple, if you want to be a disciple, then what you're really saying is you are a foreigner and that you don't fit here anymore. If you're a Christian, you don't belong here anymore, right? This world not only lacks the calories to keep you full, but it's, it's a slow and effective poison to all who feast on it. This world and its system, the fabric, the basics of this world, everything this world is about is not only going to not satisfy you, but it's going to be hurtful for you. James 4 says, You adulterous people, get this, don't you know that the friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. There's a guy by the name of Deion Sanders. I'm sure a lot of you have heard his name and are familiar would say that he knows all about feasting on this world. Still, the only athlete to ever appear in both a Super Bowl and a World Series, he is a two-time Super Bowl champion. He has become a father, he's made a lot of money, and he even released an album. 
Yet in 97, at the prime of it all, prime time, as he calls himself, <laughs> how prideful. <laughs> he has no, he was already ready to die. I'll read that again. In 97, at the prime of it all, prime time, as he was known, was ready to die. <clears throat> his marriage to his first wife, Carolyn, was ending. And Sanders says, I was empty, no peace, no joy, losing hope with the progression of everything. Sanders goes on to say, I remember winning the Super Bowl in 97 with the Cowboys. And that night after the game, I was the first one in the locker room. I was the first one to the press conference, the first one to go home. And I remember Carolyn saying to me, baby, you just, you just won the Super Bowl. Don't you have a party downstairs to go to? And Dion just says, nah. And he rolled over and went to sleep. Dion, in some people's minds, had everything. Parties, women, buying expensive jewelry. He was a champion, and yet nothing seemed to help. Sanders says, I was empty, empty, empty on the inside. Nothing I could do could touch the deep loneliness inside of me. I was just running and I couldn't stop. And in 97, the same year he won the Super Bowl, Sanders made an attempt to take his life. And in his autobiography titled Power, Money, and Sex, How Success Almost Ruined My Life, written only a year after his suicide attempt, he writes, I was at the tail end of my divorce with my first wife, and I had had enough. I often ignored in my head, or sorry, it often lingered in my head to one day jump into oncoming traffic and to take my life. But I couldn't let myself put that pain onto someone who might hit me. So I drove my car off a cliff, I stomped on the gas, and broke through the guardrails and fell 30 or 40 feet. Get this, he says, I expected the car to flip and to tumble over, but when the car hit the bottom, there wasn't a scratch on me or the car. <laughs> Amazingly, I survived and decided that my life was worth living. Now, to be a stranger in this world, to be a foreigner, means that you actually thirst for something the world cannot give you, that the world is incapable of giving you. Dion later wrote, I finally just got on my knees and I gave my life to the Lord. Now, I did a mild, some mild research on Dion Sanders. I did, I don't know, about 15 or 20 Google clicks to prepare for my message. And I'm telling you, I think this guy is a stone-cold believer. This dude loves the Lord, right? And I'll mention something later, right? And his story is remarkable, but it is not super unique because many, many are left empty by this world. And, it, and the world is something that never satisfies your soul. Now, I'm late to the party, right? This is tail end of your guys' retreat. I'm sorry, but it wouldn't be a CS, CF retreat unless we dropped a C.S. Lewis quote, right? So um, everything in this world, Lewis says, 
all that it has to offer falls short of the kinds of things in my heart that I'm designed to need and to want. Everything in this world that it has to offer falls short of the kinds of things in my heart that I'm designed to need and to want. 1 John 2. Do not love, do not love anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father, it's not in him. For everything, everything in this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of my Father lives forever. It's a funny phrase, I think. Worldly desires. What what does that mean? And you might think that it applies to uh, wickedness and adultery and pride. No, 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 no. Listen, worldliness is everything in this life that is devoid of godly righteousness and heavenly aspirations. Worldliness is everything in this life that is devoid of godliness and heavenly aspirations. Being worldly doesn't mean you're always like foaming at the mouth. It just means your eyes are here, earthly bound, pointed down. And we are meant to look up. If you guys have ever been in a, um, like a psychology class, um, you guys have probably heard of uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? This pyramid, this um, basic needs list ascending from bottom to top, right? And at the bottom of this pyramid, Maslow um, gives us like the, our physiological needs. So those would be water, food, shelter, right, air. And the next level is uh, personal security and employment. The next level is uh, like a need for love and friendships and relationships. The next is respect and status. And the last, which is the pinnacle of this pyramid, Maslow coins a term of self-actualization. And the definition is the realization and fulfillment of one's talent and potential. Guys, the potential, the, 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 the pinnacle according to Maslow, of our human existence is the realization and fulfillment of one's talent and potential. Does anyone see anything wrong with that? Guys, today I give you the world system of value. The realization and fulfillment of one's potential is bullcrap. This is not the pinnacle of human existence. As a matter of fact, The Bible destroys this worldly system. It might sound good, but it's actually ballooned and it's hollow on the inside. To simply be the best that you can be, to maximize yourself, that's worldly. Burgers and pizza taste really good, but they lack what you need in your diet. The pinnacle of human experience, can I give you from the biblical perspective, occurs when you follow these steps. One, when you hear, understand, and accept the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 
Two, when you lay down your life for others in love. And three, when you place your hope fully into what is to come and what is not in the present. All these to summarize the gospel. <laughs> That's the gospel, right? The gospel message actually is the only hope for the world because everything else is not going to cut it, right? Now, believe, believing in Jesus, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but believing in Jesus and accepting the gospel message of salvation and wiping away your sins is still not enough to satisfy your soul unless it's immediately followed by the promise of actually being in union with God one day. If all there is to a transcendent worldview is that you're going to have your sins washed away by an invisible God, that still doesn't really fix the problem of our heart. Being heavenly-minded actually causes our cups to runneth over. We can finally spring up with a well of living water. But only if we come to the end of ourselves and begin to thirst for a home we were actually meant to be. And the scriptures, they tell us to like fix your eyes, right? To fix our eyes. Paul says, fix your eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. The author of Hebrews several times tells us to fix our eyes. And, and he writes, holy brothers and sisters, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. And here's a, um, a principle to live by. When we fix our eyes, our hearts will follow. When we fix our eyes, our hearts will follow. And this is true of a discipline. This is true of anything in your life that you're trying to quit or to start doing that you're not doing. When we fix our eyes, even though we don't want to, our hearts will follow. And that's actually inversely bad for you too. When you start to gaze at your phone or your Instagram or your fantasy football too much, that's where your heart follows. So where we fix our eyes, our hearts will then be right close behind. And let's go to 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set or fix your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Christians, don't get sidetracked. Keep your eyes heaven bound, not on what's like transpiring down here. Otherwise, you cannot be fruitful until the end. Here's my last point. So uh, I wrote down just heavenly resolutions. Just thinking about, um, uh, yeah, in 24 hours, it'll be a new year, a year most people are very anxious to begin. And how can we actually make this practical? How can we practically be heavenly minded? And um, what's, what are the byproducts of that, right? So I have four points. One, be a faith walker. Live by faith. Uh, we'll finish up the section of Hebrews uh, 13 through 16 here. We're in Hebrews 16, the second half. And it says, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he prepared a city for them, right? 
So let's, for a second, hop back in our minds to Exodus. Moses, he's at the burning bush. And um, how does God declare himself? Who does he say he is? He says, I'm the great I am, right? But get this. He says to Moses, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Hey, remember Abraham, your, your ancestor? I'm his, I'm his God. And what happens is when we walk by faith, we know that without faith, it's actually impossible to please God. And we know that when we are indwelt with faith, when we have our eyes set heaven-minded, heavenward, God is not only super proud of that, but in Hebrews it says that God is not ashamed to be called their God. Why? Because Abraham lived by faith. And God will boast about you. I hope one day if God ever um, appears maybe to one of my family members generations from now that he would say, I'm the father of your great-great-grandfather, Matt. Because he lived by faith. Be a faith walker. Live by faith. It pleases God, and he won't be ashamed of you. Number two, clearly define your enemies. Okay, so after a year like 2020, this kind of needs to be said. If there's a heaven, guess what? Then there is also a hell. If there is a heaven, there's also a hell. And we actually then have not only a real God, invisible God that we can't see who loves us, but there's also an invisible enemy who's bound to destroy us. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus has come that we would have life, right? That's the enemy I'm talking about. Not Democrats, not Republicans, not the 1%. Not the immigrants, not the blacks, the Latinos, or white people. Who is really our enemy? Guys, when you uh, accept the gospel, it changes everything. How you see the world. The news and like what most of our peers are saying is like they actually have this bias in their heart because they believe, honestly that other people are really the enemies. They're not the enemies. We're called to radically love people. We know who the real enemy is. In Ephesians 6, it says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the, against the powers in this dark world, and against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. There is an enemy. Number three, Evangelize your world. You, can, you knew this was coming, right? Now, when we're heavenly minded and we take our eyes off of ourselves, something actually begins to happen, right? We take our eyes off of ourselves and we start to look around at other people in the world. And here's what we start to realize, right? Everybody's broken. Everybody's got crap. Everybody sucks. We all need hope. The rich, the poor, the beautiful, the disfigured, every, everybody needs hope. And as we direct our eyes towards heaven, it will cause you not only to do things that you wouldn't otherwise do on your own initiative, but it'll cause you to do things that you never could do on your, on your own. 
and that is to offer hope to the hopeless. Now, not everyone knows they're hopeless, right? That's what Jesus said in Matthew 5. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What he's saying is blessed are those who know they're bankrupt. Blessed are those who actually know that they're spiritually uh, deficient, for they will see the kingdom of God. And for anybody who's hopeless, God, just take them through Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Have you self-actualized yet? (laughs) I bet you haven't. I bet you will never become the best version of yourself. And there's no hope in this world system. Isaiah 61 says, The Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news. Good, it's good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim, to proclaim freedom to the captives and to release from darkness the prisoner. If you guys have time, don't do it now. Uh, Deion Sanders, I watched an interview, or a, I don't know how to explain it. He was off doing a, some adventure with Bear Grylls, <laughs> and uh, he and Bear were followed by this camera crew, and they you know, lived in nature for a few days. And there's a really cool part, a story, where um, you get to see Dion sharing his testimony and ultimately sharing the gospel with Bear Grylls. And what, what does he use to do that? He shares his story. All you got to do is type in Deion Sanders' testimony, and you'll find his, his sto- uh, him sharing his testimony with Bear Grylls. And just to say, listen, this world, it never did cut it for me. I was always empty and alone. I would go to bed at night after a party, and this is true of my story. This is my story. I would go to bed at night after a fun night of drinking and maybe I got to hook up with a girl or something and I would still feel empty. Fast forward to today. I'm married. And guys, you know what happens when you're married? You get to have sex. And I'm still not satisfied. That sex still does not satisfy the deep longing in my soul. And you can share something like that with the world and say, listen, you know this. The world doesn't fill you. It doesn't satisfy you. It can't. It was never meant to. And we can proclaim hope to the hopeless. So hopefully maybe we can, uh, in our minds, if you're ever afraid to evangelize, maybe you can just rethink exactly what evangelism is. It's just sharing God's grace. It's just sharing hope with people. The last one, number four, our last uh, resolution to read the word of God in 2020. Maybe you guys know who I'm talking about, but there's a pastor who was speaking at a Faith Walkers conference back in 2017, uh, Tom Brown. And I was really blessed to hear his call, and he challenged everyone at this conference, and he said, I challenge you to read your Bibles every day in 2018, the, next, this, uh, the upcoming year from 2017. And I'm here saying that I was very blessed to hear that call. And that's my call to you guys today. I'm going to reiterate his point. I challenge you guys, would you think and pray to potentially read the Bible every day in 2021? Because strong faith needs to be fed on the Word of God. And without a steady diet of the Word, you'll become weak. And don't believe this for a second. 
that you can still live a moral, righteous life and still pursue the things of God without being in the word of God. That, that's, that's not true. You have to be in the word of God in order to pursue the things of God and to be like God, to be godly. Romans 10 says, faith comes by hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ in the scriptures. Those are our heavenly resolutions, to be heavenly minded. Remember, guys, you are foreigners and strangers. This world doesn't cut it. The best food, the best vacation, the best, even when your team wins the championship, it still doesn't cut it. And it never will. So we have to be heavenly minded. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your son Jesus. And thank you that he came to give us new eyes to see and ears to hear. And you came to redeem us. You didn't take us out of the world yet. And you said that in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And Lord, I believe that if we are to be heavenly minded, we are then indestructible. We are conquerors if we are heavenly minded. Only then can we shed the world and adopt the new mentality. Lord, we need your help. We're so broken. I am so broken, Lord. We just need you. And we ask all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. If you found this encouraging, we hope you'll subscribe or follow for more content. Or go to our website, campusfellowship.com, for other resources. Campus Fellowship is a student organization whose goal is to come alongside local churches to reach college campuses. Thanks for listening.